you know, fall, it means rains a lot in South Florida. But don't worry, winter's coming in about two more months, so hang in there. Anyway, there was a Sunday school teacher who had a group of first graders one Sunday morning. Gotta love first graders. That morning, he planned to teach them about what they needed to do to go to heaven. But before he started, he figured, well, I better get a sense of, you know, what they already know about the subject. So he started off by asking them a bunch of questions about what they thought they had to do to go to heaven. So his first question was this. He said, all right, if I sold my house and my car and I had a big garage sale and I gave all the money to the church, would that get me into heaven? Well, the kids are pretty sharp, and they all, in unison, shouted, no! He said, okay. What if I cleaned the church, the church building? I mowed the church lawn. I made sure that everything at the church was just perfect for Sunday. Would that get me into heaven? And again, the kids answered, no! He's like, all right, this is a sharp crowd. Next, he said, what if I'm kind to animals? And what if I bring candy for all the kids, like my wife does. Would that get me into heaven? And once again, the kids together answered, no. All right, he said. Then how do I get into heaven? And a little boy in the back stood up and yelled at the top of his lungs, you got to be dead. <laughs> Today, we're starting a new three-part series called Heaven, Who Goes There? And we're, we're, we're doing this series because recently I've received an unusual number of questions about the topic of heaven. And I've noticed something. I've noticed that a lot of people know that believing in Jesus will get them to heaven. But they also believe that there's more to it. Many believe that God has some sort of formula that essentially amounts to a Jesus plus plan for attaining heaven. And they've gleaned that from either things that they've heard or from things that they've determined on their own to be the right way to think about it. All of which has led to a ton of confusion surrounding the topic. But for the Jesus follower, it is vital to get this right. So today, we're going to look at people's most common beliefs about the way that heaven works. And then we'll see just how far off those beliefs are from the teachings of God. All right? You all right with that? So let's pray and let's jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning as your ecclesia, as your community set apart from the world, set apart for you. We thank you that you've given us your word, infallible, unfailing. We're thankful that you love us, though we don't deserve it. We're thankful that you've called us, though we had nothing to do with it. So God, as we continue on this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to take in your word and allow it to transform us and to change us from the inside out. We love you, God. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's begin by considering this. According to a 2023 Gallup poll, so that's this year, 67% of all Americans believe in heaven. 
By the way, that number's a little bit down from what it's been in the past, but we're still, we're still tracking okay. 67% of all, heaven, all Americans believe in heaven. And when the poll was sort of narrowed down to consider only churchgoers, that number jumped to 94%, which is very interesting that still 6% of churchgoers don't believe in that, but okay, whatever. But of that 94%, it is a safe bet to say that most people who believe in heaven also believe that they are going there. Most people believe that there is something beyond this life that's called heaven, and that heaven is a good place, and that somehow they're going to end up there. And for most Americans, that's where the deep thinking about heaven stops. Almost no deep thought goes into the majority opinion that there's life after death, that there's some sort of heaven, and that people are confident it's where they're headed. They don't think deeply about it. Now, there are two assumptions that are common that fuel this kind of confidence. The first one is this. Most Americans assume that good people go to heaven. And the second, most Americans assume that they are a good person. Now, for most people, similar to the belief in heaven itself, the analysis ends there, which is understandable. Most people just figure that there's somebody else out there whose job it is to figure all these things out, and it's someone that's not as busy as they are. It's someone who isn't busy doing the things that they have to do every week, like take care of themselves, or their families, or their health, or their work, or their meals, or their rest, or their entertainment. Someone who isn't doing what they're doing, like binge-watching The Office again for the fourth time on Peacock. I mean, people have important things to do. So people figure they're not going to worry too much about questions like this, and they're just comfortable trusting their instinct, trusting their gut that tells them that they're a good person. Now, undeniably, that is an easy way of thinking about it. Because it feels so logical. Good people should go to heaven. And of course, everyone's thinking, well, I'm a good person. So done and done. I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. Move on with my life. Now, on some level, that does feel like a great approach. For one, it feels fair. And it feels just. And it makes sense that good people would go to a good place once this life is over, right? It makes sense that good people should be rewarded for being good in this life, doesn't it? I mean, everybody knows the difference between good and bad, right? <clears throat> doesn't <clears throat> the difference between good and bad lie at the core of almost every religious system in the world? Let me get a cup of water here. You know what happened? All right. Secondly, it makes sense that under the good people go to heaven scenario, the good people who think this way always make the cut. Of course that makes sense. If that's the thought, good people go to heaven, then they're thinking, I'm a good person, I'm going to heaven. Naturally, if a person thinks this way, they think they're a good person. Actually, when they compare themselves to some people, they know they are an awesome person. Everybody does that. You know, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as her. And even though we prefer not to admit it, that's how we think sometimes too, isn't it? And even though throughout our lives we might meet a few people who were just so good that it, they could never dream of being as good as them, 
by and large, and admit this, you don't have to say it out loud, you don't have to raise your hand, but you believe that you're in the top 20% of the goodest people, sorry for that, of the goodest people you know, because you're a really good person. Thirdly, the belief in the good people go to heaven and you're a good person so you're going to heaven formula supports the idea of a good God. Now this makes sense too. Most people in the Western world, the English-speaking democracies as well as Western Europe and a few other places, have been conditioned to believe in a good God. When someone looks up to the heavens, no matter what they believe about God, even if they really don't believe anything at all about God, they're looking up to somehow connect with a God that is good. And it logically follows that a good God would want good people in his good heaven. Now, a natural result of this thinking is that the fear of not going to heaven will motivate people to try to be good themselves. Because naturally, it leads to the notion that God is up there somewhere with a counter, keeping score, promising some sort of reward for people being kind and good and for living sacrificially and generously. And it's this kind of thinking that invariably leads to this sense of ought that most people carry around. This feeling that one ought to do that thing and one ought not to do the other thing. And because many have convinced themselves to believe that they didn't make up these rules, but rather they've come to believe that these rules must have come from God, it makes sense that they ought to because feeling the pressure of one ought to is a good thing. A lot of people love that guilty feeling, oh, I ought to be better, I ought to be, ought to be doing better at this. It's a good thing that makes people better at being good people. And it also follows that, according to this belief, if people will be rewarded even more for doing something that costs them, especially doing something they didn't want to do in the first place, but they did anyway, then there's an even bigger payoff to being extra nice and extra kind and exhibiting extra self-control. Now, if you've been following along with this, you might feel like we have gone way off the page, way down the rabbit hole. But when you take a moment to think about it, this is something that to some degree or another we all do when it comes to faith in God. We lean into a whole lot of it feels right, but we forget to stop and consider whether it is right according to God. Because when you look deeper, even just a little bit deeper, the whole good people concept just breaks down almost immediately, and it shows itself to be a very weak foundation. It's a very weak foundation upon which we are to build our hope for eternity. Even just a minute of research or a minute of thought will tell you that there is no indisputable universally agreed upon, divinely revealed standard of human goodness. And that's a problem. If there is a good God that's going to let us into his good heaven because we're good people, then that good God should have let us know what good is. Doesn't that make sense? 
I mean, if the whole good person system is God's system, shouldn't there be a standard that every human in the world can understand that sets out for us what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong? And that standard would have to have been applicable not only now, not only for us, but across time and space. It can't just be for this place and this time and this generation. It can't just be for the modern world. Because the concepts of goodness, justice, and morality have changed. And they've developed and they've evolved throughout human history. Now think about this. Some things that were obvious, that were considered obviously good 500 years ago, at least here in the West, nearly universally are considered evil now. For instance, today it is universally accepted in the Western world that men and women are inherently equal. Not the same, not indistinguishable, not any of those, but equal, entitled to equal dignity and respect. Now, to us, that's obvious. To us, that is self-evident. But if our view of the dignity of women is good, that must mean that prior to the 20th century, not many men would have gone to heaven. And in other parts of the world, it's still assumed that women are inherently inferior to men. In those places in the world, it is still self-evident that women are lesser than men. Now, I think, and I'm assuming here that everyone here thinks, that that is just horrible. But notwithstanding, it's still true. It's still the case throughout the Middle East and in many parts of Asia and many parts of Africa and other parts of the world. In those places, it is still self-evident that women are inferior to men in terms of worth. So how could a good God let men who think differently into heaven if they've lived their entire lives thinking like that? But it's not just about bad men. Given our current Western understanding of the dignity of all people, we know that human chattel slavery is bad, right? So based upon this, are we to assume that nobody in the world prior to the 16th century went to heaven at all except maybe some slaves? And are we to assume in the places in the world where slavery not only survives to this day but thrives to this day? Listen to some of these statistics. In 2021, it was estimated that there are still 7 million men and women living as slaves in Africa. There are still nearly 8 million men and women living as slaves in India. And there are nearly 4 million men and women living as slaves in China. Some people estimate that up to 45 million men and women are currently, in 2023, living as a slave somewhere in the world. Will no one in any of these countries will go to heaven? Is that that the case? Well, what if they sincerely hold to that belief? What if it's just self-evident to them that some people were born to own others and some people were born to be owned by others? Is there anything more bad than that? All this to say that being good can't possibly be how people get to heaven. Good is not a static concept. Good is a moving target. It moves generationally and it moves geographically. 
And what about the things that you used to think were good before, but you now think are not? Our definitions of good just individually are constantly changing. And there's no consensus about what is good, not in the world, not even in this generation, let alone compared to previous generations. Now, if you're still tracking with me, maybe you're thinking, all right, hold on a minute, Russell. You're the pastor. You're the Bible guy. We come together on Sunday so you can show us the standard that is set out in the Bible. So we can know good from bad. The Bible is the standard by which we should measure our behavior, right? The Bible tells us all we need to know about good so we can know whether we're good enough to go to heaven, right? Well, even though I understand that thought, I'm sure you don't want me to go there. Because if the Bible is the standard, you don't make the cut. None of us do. But some people will tell me, and I've heard this a hundred times, how can that be? What about the Ten Commandments? Over the years, I've spoken to so many people about God. And so many have responded to me, eh, I don't need the church. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be a part of the church. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to know much about God because I just try and keep the Ten Commandments. To which I used to respond, I don't respond this way anymore because I know you're not going to believe this, but some people find this response obnoxious. <laughs> and they stopped asking me questions, which is no fun. But I used to respond, oh, oh, you just try to keep the Ten Commandments, do you? Can you name them for me? Can you name them for me? All ten of them? Don't feel bad, most people can't. Of course not, most of them could not. And they were the ones who actually did think that their eternity depended on it. Well, I keep the Ten Commandments. Actually, no, you don't. Actually, no one in this room keeps all the Ten Commandments. But you can think you do as long as you don't know what they are, right? We're going to talk about them in detail in the third part of this series, so please don't miss it. Now, a little bit about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are found in the Old Testament book, the Hebrew Bible book of Exodus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah, second book of the Old Testament. And you might find it interesting, and you might even find it surprising, to know that the word heaven does not appear anywhere in the entire book of Exodus, except as it refers to the heavens, meaning the sky, meaning up there. In Exodus, there is no correlation between the Ten Commandments. And by the way, there's no correlation between any of the laws given by God and going to heaven. In fact, the Old Testament doesn't really have any specific, clear theology of an afterlife. It's in there, sort of. And when you know the New Testament, you can look back and see it. But it, it's fuzzy at best. And nothing in the Old Testament ever says, if you keep the Ten Commandments, here's what happens to you in the afterlife. So what about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament is actually even worse. The New Testament is full of things about heaven. There's more said about heaven in the New Testament by far than is said about heaven in any other ancient literature that talks about an afterlife. But the New Testament says not a word about how we can behave our way or work our way into heaven. The Apostle Paul, we've talked about him from time to time, talk about him about every week, wrote nearly half of the books in the New Testament. 
And Paul was as good a man as any. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He was an observant Jew. Remember the word Pharisee, we've talked about this, comes from the Hebrew word parush, which means one who is separated. So the Pharisees were the separated ones. They were separate from the rest of the world. The Pharisees were much holier, so they considered themselves, than anyone else. They stood apart from everyone else. And once Paul became a Jesus follower and understood the message of Jesus, he wrote this, quoting King David from Psalm 14. All have turned away. All people have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Who does good? No one does good. How many do good? Not even one. No one. Not me. Not you. No one does good. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by being good according to the works of the law. Meaning that. If you think you can just keep some law so that you'll be declared good enough for God, Paul says, and King David said, you are mistaken. Paul continues that thought a few verses later, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So even though there's so much in the New Testament about heaven, it doesn't provide us with the standard of conduct that guarantees heaven to us. In fact, it's just the opposite. There is no list of things that you need to do to be right with God and to go to heaven when you die. And anyone who thinks differently simply hasn't read their Bible. So the reality is there is no established standard. And there's a second problem with the whole good people go to heaven notion. We have no clue, we have no inkling what percentage of our actions have to be good for us to make the cut. Is it like a test? Is it graded on a curve? Is 80% a passing grade, but because everybody failed it, 50% becomes a passing grade, more or less? We don't know. So we don't know precisely what good means. And we don't know what percentage of our deeds have to be good to make the cut for heaven. And then there's this question. When considering us for heaven, does God factor in other stuff? Does he factor in our intelligence? Does he factor in our environment? Does he factor in where we grew up or when we grew up? Or in which country or city or state or family or community we grew up? What if you grew up in an environment where there was no teaching about right or wrong? What if you grew up in an environment where, where the teaching you received about morality was the opposite of the Western consensus of morality? You know, there's, there's teachings in, in Asia, there's teachings in Africa where morality is very, very different. There are some tribal communities in Africa where it is moral to take the life of another tribe's member if they're coming against your family or your tribe. It's considered completely moral. And does moral, morality even exist anymore? Does God take all that stuff into account? I know that I would take that stuff into account, but, but I'm not God, and, and God hasn't asked me for my input, and I don't expect that he will. How about this one? Is there a particular age at which God starts counting our deeds against us? If so, what's the age? Is it 13 for a boy and 12 for a girl, as the, as the Jews suggest? 
Maybe it's 18, the age of majority in the United States. Maybe it's 21. Maybe it's 25. When scientists tell us that the prefrontal cortex of our brains has fully developed and matured. Did you know that, parents? Your child's prefrontal cortex will not fully develop and mature until your child is 25 years old. If you have a child that is still under 25, this might explain a few things. At what age does God start counting things for us and counting things against us? If heaven depends on it, shouldn't the rules be a little clearer? What about this? What about our intent? In the law, there's a lot of, a lot of laws that, that turn on intent. Intentional murder is far worse than accidental killing. Intent is important. Do our thoughts and motives count for anything with God? Or is it just about what we do and not why we did something? Does that have any bearing at all? Or what about this? If you're a good person and you're doing all the good, but you've run out of time and you don't even know it, what do you do with that? What if you've done so many bad things in your life that you simply don't have enough time left to make up for all of them? How does that work? And can one really good thing negate a few bad things? All of the bad things, maybe? And if so, what's the exchange rate? And is that listed anywhere? Are all the bad things equally bad and all the good things equally good? The way we see it, we all think that our good outweighs our bad. But I guess if you're defining for yourself what's good and bad, then I guess you get to define which way the scale tips, don't you? But the truth is we don't have a clue what God's scale looks like, or even if God has a scale at all. Maybe some of the bad things you do are just too numerous, just too onerous, just too bad to ever recover from. Or if you're out of time, you might even be doomed without even knowing it. And that would leave you doing all the good things that you do in your life for nothing. You'd be good for nothing. By now you should start to see that the idea of good people go to heaven isn't holding up. It doesn't hold up at all. And what about this? What if there are a set number of good things that you need to do to reach heaven? If that's how that works, there has to be a minimum cutoff, right? But what if by the end of your life you missed the minimum cutoff? What if you only missed it by one? Oh, you almost had it. What if you're right there, but then, oh, no, you screamed out a bad word at a red light when the lady in front of you was looking down at her phone and the light turned green. Oh, man, she missed it. Oh, isn't that annoying? I've never done that. If that's the case, you missed the heaven sweepstakes without even knowing it. And on top of all that, and here's the worst part, if good people go to heaven, if it comes down to some holy scale, but God never took the time to explain to us what good means or what the good enough standard is, or if there's some curve and there's a percentage of good things that are sufficiently good to get us into heaven, if all of that remains hidden from us, and yet our very eternity depends on us getting it right, if that's the case, can we really say that God is good? Well, think of it like this. If you had a teacher who never gave you any notes in class, who never gave you any reading assignments, but only gave you one final exam, but they never gave you the date on which that final exam was going to take place. You just showed up one day and there it was. Would you consider that teacher a good teacher? 
If you had a boss who hired you, but didn't give you any guidance, didn't tell you what he expected or she expected, and then came down on you a few months later because you're not doing your job, would you consider that to be a good boss? Would you consider that to be your boss? I hope not. What if there was a race, but the officials didn't post any signs delineating the path of the race? What if you didn't know the distance of the race? And what if they didn't even set the finish line of the race until after the race had already started? Would that be fair? That wouldn't be good, would it? But if good people go to heaven, that's what we're looking at. That would mean that God isn't good the way we think of good. Or God isn't fair the way we think of fair. And if we're trying to earn our way into heaven by our goodness, by way of our understanding of goodness and fairness, well, that's precisely the scheme that we're trying to operate under. We're supposed to be good so we can be with a good God who never defined the terms and who never told us how good is good enough. Because if God is good the way we understand good, shouldn't he tell us what is to be expected? If the good God really cared about us, if there was a way to work our way into heaven, then we would need that kind of guidance. And we would need it for every place and every time and every generation, wouldn't we? Now, maybe you're listening to me this morning and you're thinking, well, there are other options to the good people go to heaven theory, right? I mean, how about the theory, oh, it's just random. God simply decides without our participation. How about that view? Well, that hardly seems like it's likely for a God who's told us in John 3.16, for a God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That hardly seems likely for a God that came that they may have life and have it to the full. Well, that theory doesn't work. So what about the you wouldn't know God if he smacked you in the head theory? The view that says we are so bad, we are so depraved, that we, we don't even have the capacity to tell good from evil. That's the view that tells us that there's no use in God telling us the good we have to do because we'll never be able to do it. We're too messed up to even recognize good if we saw it, let alone to be able to see good and do good. Are you frustrated yet? I hope you know by now I'm setting you up here, and I'm setting you up on purpose. And I'm setting you up because I want to challenge the things that you naturally fall to, you naturally think about, no matter how well you think you understand your faith, because we all do. It's to some degree or another. We all wrestle with these thoughts. And I want you to think about how the faith of the people of Jesus is different. According to Jesus, good people don't go to heaven. Yet Jesus instructed us as his followers to be good. And Jesus instructed his followers to do good, to do good to each other, and to be good and do good to their enemies, which means that Jesus believed that we are capable of doing good, and we are capable of distinguishing between good and bad. So Jesus instructed his followers to do good and to be good even to people who mistreat us. And Jesus said, this is how good I want you to be. I want you to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But not so you'll go to heaven. Nothing Jesus taught points to the fact that somewhere there's this prerequisite list 
That if you can just get everything on the handout done, you're in. In fact, the exact opposite is what he taught. Still instructing his followers to be good. Actually, he instructed his followers to be much, much better than good. As, as we read in the Sermon on the Mount, remember, Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, but I'm really telling you, go further than that. Don't even get angry, and don't even look. Jesus set the standard of good so high that even the best people of his day, the Pharisees, weren't good enough to keep their very own laws. And yet, in spite of all this, Jesus never even inferred that if you are good enough, you'll spend eternity in heaven. He just said, be like our Father in heaven. Not so you'll go to heaven. After that, he said that the good people, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the law keepers, and the bad people, the Romans, after Jesus said all that, those people conspired together to kill him, and they crucified him. But Jesus had the final word, because from the cross, he said to a very bad man, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And why did he say that to the very bad man? Because the very bad man showed his faith in Jesus. If Jesus is who his first century followers claimed he is, that is really good news. So when you lose a loved one, For example, you can grieve with hope. One of my first observations on the path that God took me down from being spiritually and eternally lost to being saved and assured a promised and blessed eternity connected to my Heavenly Father was the difference in the level of hope that I observed at a Jewish funeral versus the level of hope that I've observed at Christian funerals. At every Jewish funeral I've ever attended, all I noticed was despair, was sadness, was weeping and gnashing of teeth, quite literally. My, great, my, my grandfather died when I was 18 years old. And the image of his mother, my great-grandmother, draped over the body of her son in that casket, draped over the body of my grandfather in that casket, the image of her weeping, and pounding on his chest for half an hour, moaning, why, 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 over and over again is burned into my brain. I will die with that image in my brain. But the memory of a congregation of nearly a 1,000 people just a few weeks ago triumphantly standing and singing with hope and joy, there ain't no grave that's going to hold my body down at my friend Ron's funeral reminded me of the hope and joy that we have in Jesus. If good people go to heaven, but we have no idea how the system works, there is not much hope. But for followers of Jesus, for people who have understood that they come into this world broken, they come into this world separated from God because of the sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve's actions in the Garden of Eden from our original parents' actions. If, if, if people understand that they come into this world broken in need of a Savior, and then they understand that God so loved the world that he sent that Savior, Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, born without a sin nature, who lived that perfect life and then allowed himself to go to the cross where he would pay for our sins, 
so that we could live forever. He died. He was put into a tomb, but he came back from the dead. He had no sin. Death couldn't hold him. He appeared to hundreds of witnesses. He ascended, went up to heaven, promising to return one day. If we understand that and we turn from, we repent from our sins, we turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I will follow you with my life. I give you everything. If we follow Jesus in that way, hope abounds. And God showed up, not over and over and over again, every time and every generation, but one time, one time for all to tell us the way and to show us the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, instead of giving us a list, God gave us himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, or behaves like him, that whoever behaves correctly, that whoever does more good than bad, no. God, good people are not the people who go to heaven. Heaven is for those who believe in Jesus, who believe in him, whoever puts their trust in him. That person will not be lost to God, regardless of what they've done or what they didn't do. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John, who spent three and a half years with Jesus, he saw the whole thing. John, who took care of Jesus' mother Mary after the crucifixion. John, who knew the whole story from beginning to end. John told us. John came into the story assuming that he had to keep the law. John was a Jew. He assumed he had to keep the law. And he didn't have any idea what would happen after his life was over. All he knew was that everyone went to Sheol. And that he, along with everyone else, well, he hoped that from there, God would just sort everything out. Uh, God had faith that something good would happen. And John knew that there would be a resurrection someday. And that eventually there'd be a judgment. And he just hoped that he did enough to pass the test. But there was no confidence. There was no assurance. John was just doing the best that he could. But then he and the others sat under Jesus' teachings for that three and a half year period. And things were completely different. Under Jesus, they learned that God was not trying to catch them doing something wrong so that he could condemn them. Rather, John learned that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God was not going to save the world by providing do's and don'ts and then updating those do's and don'ts every generation. God was going to do it through his one and only son, Jesus. Jesus did not give us a to-do list. Jesus gave us a who. And that who invited all of us to place our trust in him. And when we do that, all of our evil and bad deeds, regardless of our motives, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of our context, regardless of anything else, all of our bad deeds would be paid for and wiped away so that we could mourn with assurance, so that we can lay in bed at night and know that things are good between us and God, and it has nothing to do with what we did. So, what are we to do? Don't miss part two of heaven. Who goes there? Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for everyone here today who, for the first time, understood. And thank you for the people who already knew but needed a little reminder. I pray, Lord, that you would give everyone here the wisdom to embrace that truth, 
and hang on to it for the rest of their lives. Thank you for sending your son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.